0: It's time to face the music. It's your day in court with a people's lawyer, Bruce Hagan, and attorney Ray Giudice. Welcome
1: to your day in court. My name is Tug Coward, along with renowned lawyers, Bruce Hagan and Ray Giudice. This is one of the most popular shows in Atlanta on the weekend because we talk about real issues when it comes to the legal system. Sometimes issues facing you, which we'll get to in the second segment today. And then sometimes just the big stories that are in the news and in everybody's faces and in their feed and on social media and in the, uh, you know, whatever news website you uh, go to, you see the stories there. Before we get to the Gladen Maxwell case, I want to introduce you to Bruce and Ray and let you know how you can get a hold of them if you need
2: their expert opinion and advice. Bruce, we'll start with you. Yeah, thanks. And great to be here with everybody. Bruce Hagen, H-A-G-E-N. I'm easy to find, hagen-law.com. You can email me, bruce, at hagen-law.com. My number is 404-522-7553. We're always there to take calls and hopefully help you with your personal injury questions. And uh, on Twitter, at Peeps Lawyer, um, we'd love to get uh, comments and questions from our listeners. And so if you'll just reach out to either me, at Peeps Lawyer, or Ray, or Tug, um, we'd love to get to any questions you may have, and bring to our attention via Twitter. That's
3: exactly right, Ray. How do we get a hold of you? Ray Judice, G I U D is in David I C E four oh four nine six four forty one eighty five RayJLaw dot lawcom I've uh, got a nice website. Everybody's got a nice website. It's not that complicated. And there's no excuses for not having a hmm. good website. But I've tried to put a lot of informative content on. Not just you know pounding my chest about my various courtroom victories, but How do we defend cases how do we prepare for cases for court what's the best thing a client can do to help themselves help their lawyer uh trying to make it a little bit of a law 101 just like we sort of do here every saturday morning
1: Let's start with the Ghislaine Maxwell case because there's been uh, some some new uh, information coming out about that, and and, and the fact that uh, I I am under I understand guys that that she is going to some appeal some of the charges.
2: Yeah, I mean that's not surprising. I'm sure they look for every imaginable opportunity to appeal. Um, one one thing that folks don't necessarily realize is that there has to be a basis in the law for an appeal. You can't just say I'm appealing because I'm unhappy with the result, there are some courts from which you can do that. For example, we've talked about magistrate court cases, which is like our our Georgia small claims court. You can appeal the result of a magistrate court for any reason or no reason at all. But to appeal a conviction such as the one in the Ghislaine Maxwell case, there has to be a legal justification for it. One of the bases for the appeal is some comments that were made by A juror after the verdict was rendered, after the jurors were released from their prohibition on speaking to the media. Uh, And this has led potentially to the defense saying that, hey, something improper went on in the jury room and we want to appeal based on that. The ability to do that would go against very longstanding precedent that says that you can't open up the discussions that went on in the jury room because those are very intentionally confidential and, and meant to be Secretive. So as long as the jurors all agree that they signed off on the result, um, you can't usually go back and say that, yeah, the way that result was reached was based on some improper comments or discussions in the jury room.
3: Well, you know, there are certain time limits within which defense counsel must at least file what's called a notice of appeal and a motion for new trial or motion for reconsideration of verdict and sentencing. Generally, those are short periods of time. 30 to 60 days after the jury renders its verdict and it becomes an order of the court. So that's some of it is just you have to do it as defense counsel to preserve your development of later theories that are, as Bruce says, that have legal merit. So the first document you find is just a file, excuse me, an appeal is almost like a three page document that says we appeal various cursory grounds general grounds insufficient evidence jury misconduct blah 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 and then you have a certain amount of time generally you get until the court reporter produces the transcript and another 30 to 60 days after that to file your as bruce points out your much more specific appellate arguments that hopefully have merit lots of times what you're trying to do as criminal defense counsel is to get something in the in the books so you can then go talk to the prosecutor about maybe a resentencing to a lower sentence or will she cooperate in any further investigation against any potential co-conspirators who have been long rumored and not indicted.
1: Let me ask you guys a question really quick, because I, as I'm reading um, this from Reuters, it basically says that she wants a, a retrial. So is is there a difference in retrial and then appeal? There is, right?
3: Yeah, you file both. And in Georgia, that, that until that is ruled upon by the court, your notice of appeal is delayed. So they're buying time strategically. Sometimes you got to step back from the trial and say, hey, what's wrong? Lots of times what happens is new counsel comes in. Okay. So trial work, like what Bruce and I do day to day, picking juries, arguing motions in front of a judge. That's somewhat of a different specialty in the law than appellate work, going to the Court of Appeals, going to the state or a federal Supreme Court. And oftentimes, new counsel will come in to handle the appeals because they're better at that. And here's the thing. If defense counsel at trial made any mistakes that could rise to the level of ineffective assistance of counsel, then you have to have new lawyers come in on the defense side to make that accusation against the trial counsel that they screwed up judge they tried the case improperly they missed seven witnesses that they should have called we've uncovered new evidence that they didn't discover she's entitled to a new trial because these folks were ineffective as counsel
2: and you can be sure that both sets of legal counsel at this trial had their appellate team there during every moment of the proceedings taking notes looking for potential issues that they could bring up again as uh, possible appeal sources, advise the trial counsel either to be careful that they're not stepping too far into a certain direction or specifically tell them continue down this line because it will set us up with an issue for appeal. Sometimes the defense team's best approach might be knowing that we're going to lose at trial, but perhaps we can create an issue on appeal that will get the verdict overturned and
3: present a retrial and we'll win it in that battleground instead of at the trial level. And vice versa, there are prosecutors, most of whom are very cautious about putting fault or a mistake in their case just to get a prosecution that a conviction that may later be overturned. When I was a baby prosecutor 30-something years ago here in DeKalb County, Georgia, our supervisor made the trial lawyers do the appeal work so that they were, they. Uh, number one, we knew the case best, quite frankly. But secondly, it was, hey, don't push the envelope. Don't try to sneak in a piece of evidence that you really think might get overturned, because if so, you're going to do the appeal and retry the case, and that's just a lot of work. And okay. to have... Have the uh, sorry one thing. The last thing you want, as any trial lawyer, rooster I know, is the Georgia Court of Appeals, the Georgia Supreme Court, say that lawyer knew what they were doing and made a terrible mistake. This case should be retried. Blah blah. blah. You just don't want your name associated with that kind of appeal uh, decision.
2: I remember having a trial also as a young lawyer in front of uh, Judge Doris Downs, Fulton County, and I forget what the actual item of evidence was that I was trying to get admitted into the case and defense was objecting to it and the judge looked at me and she said, Mr. Hagan, other than creating a grounds for appeal here, why are you trying to get this piece of evidence into, admitted? Hmm. And I looked at her and said, Judge, I don't really know. I think I'll withdraw it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. I'm not trying to rock the boat here.
2: <laughs> I'm really not, and certainly with, with the cases we handle as plaintiffs, the last thing we want is to create an appeals issue. We, we want to get things finalized. Sure. I know defense would like to drag things out and sometimes make them go longer, but we just want to get things to a, a good result and have a, a what we call a clean trial where everything that was done was done properly.
1: All right, here in the and last two minutes, what do you all think the uh, sentencing will be for Ghislaine Maxwell? It happens uh, June 28th.
2: Well, I will say this. Something interesting happened this week, and it seemed like a minor point, but um, there's a there's another trial going on, and uh, in the course of that trial, the identities of several um, supposed people who were involved at Epstein Island involved in uh, abusing these young girls, um, their their names were at this point being withheld from uh, being made public. And Maxwell had objected to the names being made public. Well, this week, kind of out of nowhere, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell comes over and said, we have no objection to this information being shared with the public. And perhaps that's a way of ga- uh, garnering the good graces of the prosecution uh, for whatever their sentencing recommendation was, might be, or the judge for the judge's ultimate sentencing recommendation saying, hey, look, we're not standing in the way of these other folks who were involved in these heinous acts being named, identified, and brought to
3: justice. Yeah, I agree. Uh, There's something going on behind the scenes in this case. That's my belief. Uh, I think a judge is going to be hard-pressed to give her anything but serious federal prison time at the end of this case. I believe that this lady is in her early 60s. Which means that a good part of the remaining, you know, part of her last portion of her life will be spent in a in a very serious prison. I don't believe this will be the uh, Martha Stewart uh, chain link fence around the apartment complex club met, club fed type sentence as they often so- call it. Uh, now, some of that does does is maybe indicative that she's cooperating now uh, with the prosecutors. And is willing to open up her diary as name names. Wow! Uh, I don't know if that's going to get her very far. Uh, she didn't cooperate initially. The uh, court and the and the defense, I mean, the prosecution went through a lengthy trial, expended numerous resources, and put four very, I think, hurt and and difficultly uh, treated people on the witness stand. The defense was so aggressive uh that i think that's going to be hard to shake out of a judge's ears when he when she sent
1: okay all right yeah the uh according to reuters they say she faces up to 65 years in prison we'll see how all that turns out this is your day in court with bruce hagan and ray judice my name is tug cowart here on extra 1063 when we come back we're going to talk about how judges that you might end up in front of actually end up on the bench We'll get the expert advice and the expert experience of Bruce and Ray on that question next on your day in court.
0: The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required. And they can be redeemed whenever you like.
4: 20 dealerships located throughout metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive where you can always expect the best
0: this is your day in court with bruce hagan and ray judice on extra 1063
1: welcome back to your day in court with bruce hagan and ray judice renowned lawyers here in atlanta and if you have any sort of legal issue that you need to discuss i encourage you to reach out to them find them on social media find them on the web just a quick google search for either name and you will get expert advice for whatever you're dealing with. Let's start, guys, with the judges that are on the court systems here in Georgia. How do they end up there? And there's so many different layers of courts that you could wind up in. There's so many levels. Where do y'all want to start with the the way judges end up on the, on the bench?
2: Well, uh, it's an interesting process, and um, I know it's confusing to people because frequently they're looking at, ballots and they're there, uh, you know, hopefully informed on the major things they're voting on, whether it's a state race or or a national uh, race or even just a local race. But when it comes to the judges, people oftentimes have no idea who it is that they're voting for. They they haven't seen any commercials. They don't research who the candidates are. um, And other than the trial lawyers, Most people don't know anything about the judges. So, you know, I I try to uh, put out information as best I can when we're getting into the season of judicial elections, just to let people know who I support and why, um, to the extent that um, you want to get information from somebody who's familiar with the candidates. And I would encourage anybody who's listening that, you know, if you know a trial lawyer... Ask them what they think. Ask them who who these appellate court judges are. Ask them who um, the state and superior court judges are, because these are nonpartisan races. And for folks who just kind of rely on whether they see the R or the D next to a candidate's name, judicial elections in Georgia are nonpartisan, and there's um, no real identification there. Um, There are Certain races where candidates have spent a lot of money and in recent years have gotten donations from uh, PACs and outside sources that allow them to get a message out there. And the message rings with buzzwords that you would connect to one party or the other, even though the um, candidates themselves are nonpartisan, right?
3: Well, this has become so uh, so much more competitive Uh, In my 35-plus years of practice, it used to be, as long as a judge didn't make the front page of the newspaper uh, or do something outrageous or commit a crime, uh, they were reelected as long as they wanted to be judge. And it was mainly the lawyers, the local lawyers in that county or statewide that funded the campaigns, and most often they were uncontested. That's completely changed now. Uh, our world now is that first of all, they're pretty good jobs as far as the salary and the benefits. And where it used to be, a, a, becoming a judge was sort of the last third of your legal career. Quite often, I'm seeing judges on the bench now that haven't been practicing for ten years or twelve years, which seems a little unusual. Uh, doesn't mean they're not intellectually competent. It's just that there's only so much you can learn in the first eight to ten years of legal practice, but. Uh, we're seeing the Supreme Court races for the state of Georgia, as Bruce pointed out, uh, where, where the candidates are raising millions and millions of dollars. And that's not done at Bruce's Backyard Barbecue, where every lawyer in Decatur comes and gives 150 200 bucks. These are major donations, many times from out of state. So you're wondering why does some so a doctor who lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan – care about who the Supreme Court justice is in the state of Georgia. Well, politics has entered this game. And when the Supreme Court of Georgia rules on a certain case, that can set law standards for the next generation or two generations. So these cases, these jobs have become nationalized. Uh, Most, as Bruce pointed out, most folks don't know who their 20 different Superior Court judges in Fulton County are. So ask your local lawyer. But also, it's one of the things that judges do uh, when they have a jury. I've noticed that recently the judges tend to keep the jury in the courtroom for sentencing. They like to take the jury back in the jury room and talk to them. Well, that's 12 people who are going to go back to their church or their synagogue or their PTA meeting and say, boy, that judge was great. He or she did a great job and put the hammer down on that guy after we convicted him. Uh, and part of it is just judges wanting to educate the public and have a, a more educated uh, citizenry, which we we could use very desperately. But many of the judges, if you go to traffic court tomorrow morning for a speeding ticket in a municipal court of fill in the blank, that judge has probably been appointed uh, by either the superior court or the state court or the senior magistrate judge. And that judge isn't up for a reelection every four years and serves at the pleasure of the powers that be.
2: Yeah, and the governor has authority to appoint judges along the way when there are openings created, whether at the Court of Appeals or at the State and Superior Court level, um, and then those judges will be up for re-election when the term of the judge that they're replacing expires. So just as an example, um, Governor Kemp appointed uh, someone to the Court of Appeals within the last year, and his last name is Pinson, um, and is a young um, lawyer who clerked um, and put uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court for one of the justices there who um, represented the state of Georgia uh, in cases, but never actually uh, has had any trial experience. It was kind of an interesting appointment for an appellate court judge. Um, and normally when a uh, judge is appointed to an appellate position like that, as Ray was saying, unless there's something really scandalous about the judge. Um, They're left alone, and and, and they're not challenged. That changed, I'd say, in the last maybe 10 years, Ray, um, it seems to have changed a little bit where um, judges can be subject to attack on election. And I think that's what's going to happen with Pinson. In fact, there's a very uh, experienced and competent trial lawyer who has entered the race, or announced an intention at least to enter the race for that Court of Appeals seat. And it's something that I'm sure folks in our profession are going to hear a lot about as this gets closer to uh, Election Day. But the only way that the public is going to hear about it is if this outside money gets involved in the race, because otherwise these guys uh, and this race is essentially unknown to the public. Um, One thing else, another thing rather, that has changed in certainly the last 10 years uh, is that we know that judges, sitting judges, would often... Um, have to raise money and and sort of create a war chest kind of to fend off challengers but also be prepared in case there was a challenge to have money to send out mailers and and whatnot and let the public know who they are and what they've done. Um, And it used to be somewhat casual, but man, in the last uh, 10 to 15 years or so, the judges have gotten so aggressive uh, because they have to. And and if they want to keep their position, they have to have a war chest to be able to fend off the competition. And it's very disconcerting uh, when you get a call in your office from a sitting judge, uh, whether you have a case in front of them or not, and that judge is saying, I need money from you. uh, What are you going to say? I I mean, it's, it's, we know that they're supposed to be impartial. We know that making these contributions doesn't gain you any favor, but do you really want to take the chance of sort of being on a list of folks who turned down that request for a donation. So, so it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. And I think um, it casts judges, uh, it can cast them in an uncomfortable light as sort of seeking to buy favors or sell their, sell their favors, which it's really not the case. They it just, it, the reality is they have to have a war chest to be able to uh, stay on in the position that they've gained.
3: Yeah. And, and Bruce is absolutely right. I mean, Uh, it used to be maybe a two hundred and fifty, a five hundred dollar check. You went to the barbecue, you had it in an envelope with a little note, best of luck, and dropped it in a fishbowl and you know, you probably did the same for their opponent. In many cases, I've made contributions to both very competent candidates for the same job. And may the best party win or the best candidate. But nowadays, and I've had the same thing, not only do I have uh, you know, direct communications from judges or their senior representative, I mean, their campaign manager, who's generally a lawyer. And not only are they asking for a donation, they're they're reminding you that you can max out at twenty six hundred or whatever, <laughs> and so can your wife. And you're saying, I'm I'm getting a hit for fifty two hundred dollars here, and there's as I like to point out, I mean, there's there's twenty superior court judges and ten state court judges. In Fulton County, Georgia alone, that are 30 judges running for re-election every four years. Uh, I think they're staggered, so they're not all up every four years, but half and half, basically. Then you throw in DeKalb County, Cobb County, Gwinnett County, just the areas that Bruce and I are in court a lot. You're talking about over, well over a hundred elected judges, and don't forget the district attorneys are elected, and they're looking for contributions. The state solicitors, who are misdemeanor prosecutors, so so I know some very prominent lawyers, uh, and I've tried to collect collect raise some money uh, for some very good judges, and they've just said, "Ray, I made the decision 20 years ago. I'm not giving anybody anything," and it's across the board. And as I get older, I, I kind of see the beauty of that logic. We have a we have a campaign system both in politics for our Congress people, our senators, all the way to the top, and our state elected judges that is fueled almost solely by money. And now that's a debate that maybe we should have more of. Um, I, I get calls occasionally from folks
2: who are um, running a race to challenge a sitting state or superior court judge in an election and and i've gotten good at saying that i I hope you understand but i have a policy of not contributing to anybody who's challenging a sitting judge if you are fortunate enough to beat that judge and and win the office I would be happy to then write you a check to help you retire your campaign debt. I can't have my name on a list of somebody who supported a competitor of a judge that I have a case in front of or may have a case in front of soon uh, because that just would not be a smart thing for me to do for my clients. And, and, you know, there is the old saying that a good lawyer knows the law, but a great lawyer knows the judge.
1: (laughs) Right. So but that leads me to ask you all a question then. From each of your perspectives, is it more important for a judge to be known in the community, like when somebody's going to the, the voting booth, if they're elected that way, or is it more important for the, the legal teams, the, the lawyers in town, to know that judge?
3: Well, I've always said it's not a lawyer's poll, and quite often, quite often the, the lawyers are wrong about who, the, uh, who gets elected. Uh, we think we know who the best judges are, but that may not be the judge that has gone out or the candidate and uh, been at three churches every Sunday giving speeches and worked at, the, you know, made, made his, his or her presence at the PTA. I mean, it's, it's politics. Uh, it's shaking hands and going to chicken dinners and, and doing things, uh, community service stuff in the community. So, uh, you know, who we lawyers often think is the best candidate is not always the one, is not always the winner.
2: And, and when it comes to appellate cases, um, keep in mind that these are reported and available to the general public. And what you've seen in recent years is some very unfair attacks by groups that are agenda driven, that they'll pull language out of some case and, and then with their unlimited budget, seek to attack a judge for some language that was put in an opinion. Um, and so it can get really, really nasty. For, for example, you know, there might've been some absolute breach of every rule of evidence uh that's known to lawyers that compelled a case to be overturned and and yet you know what is harped on is some awful fact you know like this judge let a mass murderer of, of little children walk right and and the judge's job and especially in appeals is, is not to um say hey the rules are different because this guy's a mass murderer it's, it's to make sure that there's a fair trial and where there's not a fair trial to, to step in, and, you know, they, they call balls and strikes. That's their job. So, so, you know, yet they get vilified if they let some murderer walk. We need a judge who's tough on crime. And it's really, it, it's hard for the judges to sort of clap back against that sort of outside noise.
3: Well, the, the problem with this, and, and Ms. Bruce and I have had this conversation about various candidates, what's the other approach? Well, you know, it's, it's the blue ribbon panel. Uh, selected by the, uh, the the owner, the, the big law firms uh, who don't have Bruce and I's contribution or the little guy down the street, and who are they going to pick? Are they going to pick the best judge or the judge that's got the most trial experience, or you know their friend from the big law firm or the corporate law firm that's never tr- picked a jury in their career? Uh, you know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said that you know democracy is kind of messy and not perfect, but it's still the best system out there. So until someone can come up with a better way to place judges on a regular basis, especially our day-to-day work and trial judges, who have to be responsive to the will of the public and the and the evidence and the shifting mores and and uh, you know standards, I still think the election system is the best, but perhaps we need to work on how the money is handled, and Bruce is right. The rules about money. I mean, I believe me. I remember cash, <laughs> you know, in envelopes stuffed into people's, you know, breast pockets or raincoats. I think there was actually somebody, a politician, convicted in Georgia many years ago, that had a, a raincoat full of cash envelopes. Uh, and so there's very strict reporting rules now, uh, and the candidates are much better about that, and everything is pretty much above board, very much above board. But again, it puts us lawyers in a very difficult situation. Is a judge on the bench got a list in front of him or her that says on the right side didn't make a contribution and a list of names on the right side of the paper that said did keep make a contribution? I don't think that really happens. But you know, we have we have a public who's very suspicious of politicians to begin with, and maybe they need to have a better uh, a surety that we have an honest and fair system.
2: Yeah. One thing to raise point of how we select judges to begin with, um, the state of Georgia, and I'm sure this is replicated all over the country, has something called the Judicial Nominating Committee. And it's a group typically of lawyers and judges um, that is um, appointed on a regular basis. Uh, they tend to rotate folks on and off. Uh, and what they do is they kind of vet candidates Uh, who might qualify for certain positions. Uh, Some of them you can nominate yourself. If you want to be a judge and you think you have the qualifications, throw your name in the hat and you may not be on an early list. But then the Judicial Nominating Committee will help him um, and and make recommendations to the governor as far as who should end up being appointed. And there's various reasons why um, a certain judge might be appointed. It's not always what you think. It's certainly nothing like the process by which we appoint Supreme Court justices, um, which in recent years has been made very public uh, and, and very controversial. This is oftentimes just done very quietly, and I doubt that anybody outside the legal community is even aware that it's happening, um, even though these decisions are very important to, uh, to the lives of the folks who are trying to get these judgeships. At the federal level, it's a much different process that that uh, is really challenging and involves all kinds of layers of politics, and that's true of every uh, federal court, both those here in the uh, state of Georgia and the various districts, as well as at the federal courts of appeals, and ultimately what we see happens at the U.S. Supreme Court, so much different process. Yeah, and it sort of leads you to wonder, uh, the thought I've had at various times is that maybe only sitting lawyers, active lawyers, should be the ones who vote on judicial elections since we're the ones who know what they do, what they don't do, whether they're qualified and competent or whether they're not. But that takes it away from the public having any input and that's not uh, good for business either. Um, One funny story I kind of want to say, years ago in DeKalb County, Uh, there was a race for an open seat and my office sits just a couple hundred yards from the DeKalb County courthouse and is a highly trafficked street. So every car coming into Decatur passes by my office. I got approached by a candidate, please put my sign in your yard. I want to have it out there. So I knew this guy, I thought he'd be great, put his sign in my yard, made a donation to his campaign. Well, he lost and didn't even get in the runoff. And so two people are in a runoff now for a second election. So then one of the candidates says, hey, I'm in the runoff let me put a sign in your yard okay but you you know that didn't work for the last guy so so he puts a sign in the yard i make a donation to his campaign well he loses all right so now i've supported two losing candidates and i've got a trial in front of the judge who won the election about a a month after she took office Uh, and the judge pulls everybody up to the bench and says look i just want to um, make sure that y'all know this so that there's no appearance of anything improper but the defense lawyer in this case made a donation to my campaign and if you, Mr. Hagan, feel that um, that creates any sort of potential conflict that I should recuse myself from this case, I will happily step aside and we'll get some other lawyer uh, some other judge in here to try the case. And I looked around. I said, Judge, I have no problem with you staying on the bench. I do not believe you should recuse yourself. My only question is whether there's still time for me to match or double the <laughs> contribution that opposing <laughs> counsel made. That's right. Uh, and everybody got a good laugh out of that, and we just kind of moved on with the trial. I love it.
1: So what would be – what – how bad would it have been for you and your client if you would have been like, you know what? I, I think you may should recuse yourself, Judge.
2: Uh, it probably would not have been bad. No? But I okay. think that was one of those offers that the judge made uh, seemingly doing the right thing, but fully expecting me to say no, right. no, no, thank you. you know, it's like if somebody has ever invited you out to dinner and you say, come on, let me get the check. Now I know I got it, right? Like If they actually said, sure, you can pick it up. It's like,
3: what? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Ray, have you ever ran into that? Well, uh, yes, but in, in, the, in the context of my typical criminal case, it, it's a little bit of a different problem. Uh, I would definitely have an obligation to go talk to my client and get the client's input, perhaps permission, uh, especially if there's a case where my client may be sent to prison for a lengthy period of time, and then there's an appeal. Uh, for ineffective assistance of counsel that uh, I was told by the judge that opposing counsel. Now, you don't usually have that because the opposing counsel is a prosecutor uh, who generally don't make contributions, but maybe they went to the same church or maybe there's some affiliation. They went to law school together and the judge said, should I recuse Mr. Giudice? Um You almost have to side on the error, error on the side of safety. That's what I'm trying to say. And say, Judge, with all due respect, uh, would you mind recusing yourself? The case then goes back to the chief judge, who then reappoints the case to another judge. And you know what? Really, that's not a big problem. Uh, I I have found on the very rare occasions in all these years that I've either been involved in something like that or seen it. The judges understand that we trial lawyers are in a difficult position. Uh, When you lose a case— the defendant or in, in Bruce's uh, position, the claimant, the plaintiff, you know, they want to strike out at anybody, including their own lawyer who may have been at fault. You know, I always said you have to be careful. You don't want to be the next defendant in the next lawsuit uh, because you didn't disclose something to your client, even something as, as you know, low level as recusal because you're just going to get another good judge. I mean, it's just another judge coming in. So uh, I, I think I think on the criminal side, you have to be a little more careful.
1: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to me. I, uh, I I can completely see where both sides are coming from. It's just a great discussion, and I think it's so educational for people to hear this and understand how they end up in front of the judges that they end up in front of and, and when they're elected and when they're appointed. And it's such a good debate and discussion, and it's so important, I think, for people to understand. I certainly appreciate you all sharing your expertise there. And uh, as we continue here on Extra 106.3, When we come back, do you remember the man whose toddler died in the backseat of a hot car here in uh, Marietta? Well, he is asking for his convictions to be overturned for murder and child cruelty. We'll discuss the Justin Ross Harris case next on Extra 106.3.
4: Hey everybody, Buck Baloo here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the
0: best. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagen and Ray Giudice on Extra 106.3.
1: Welcome back to Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice. My name is Tug Cowart. Justin Ross Harris. He was convicted in November of 2016 on eight counts, including malice murder in the death of his 22-month-old son Cooper when he left Cooper in the back of a hot car. He has gone back and is asking for Georgia's highest court to overturn his convictions for murder and child cruelty. Y'all, how did he get, get in front of a judge to be able to to ask them to overturn this?
2: Well, it takes more than just being dissatisfied with the result to get in front of the Georgia Supreme Court. Not every case is appealable to the Georgia Supreme Court. And sometimes you have to ask for the court's permission. In other words, you have to raise an issue on appeal that rises to a level for this Georgia Supreme Court to say that, well, we think that number one, this is a case of interest to the Georgia Supreme Court. And it's something where the law is not already crystal clear, either through the language of statutes or the way that the law has been interpreted in other cases. So there has to be a basis for it. And there's a process called certiorari where you submit a a request for the court to hear your appeal. There are other cases where the Supreme Court has sole jurisdiction and you can get a case there directly. Um, Death penalty cases, I think, might be one of those. But certainly in this particular case, it's one that I know Ray, uh, because uh, our local TV stations like to go to Ray since he's such an authority and expert on these things. I know Ray was very closely following this particular trial and can fill us in on some more of the details.
3: Well, and this sort of relates to what we talked about earlier in the show about prosecutors maybe pushing the envelope with questionable evidence in order to secure a conviction. So, uh, what Ross Harris was convicted of, of course, was uh, the death of his young child uh, in the car seat in the back of his car. Mr. Harris goes into work, allegedly comes out at the end of the day and finds his son dead in the car. He's been sitting there in the hot sun all day. Those are, that's a thumbnail sketch of the case. Well, the prosecution entered in an effort to show motive. Why? the defendant would want the child to die to get out of the uh, alleged boring marriage and the, the responsibilities of child care and being a daddy so that he can sex with underage prostitutes and look at porn. Well, maybe that's a motive, but why, as the Supreme Court justice asked, was it necessary for the prosecution to show the jury nine photos taken from Harris's uh, cell phone of Harris's penis, and then have those photos enlarged for the jury to see. What what was the point of that? Uh, was it to show how how overboard he was in his sexting with these alleged underage uh, minors and prostitutes? Or was it to just get the jury so angry at this man that uh, they, they were blinded to the fact that maybe, and I'm not defending him, but maybe this was a mistake. You know, there are there are a lot of these child-in-a-car the cases every summer, uh, and most of the folks are not prosecuted to the extent that Mr. Harris was. At most, it's a negligent case or a reckless conduct case, and most of the time it's just folks that you know made a terrible, deadly mistake. Uh, but the prosecution really, really pushed in evidence, and to her uh, credit, the prosecutor who argued this appellate argument in front of the Supreme Court, who did not try the case now. It's a new prosecutor, who was also the very successful prosecutor in the recent Aubrey uh, case in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, where she secured the, vic- the uh, prosecution of those three Cretans out there. Uh, she acknowledged that the prosecution may have overdone it with these type of photos and evidence, but there was still so much evidence of, of Mr. Ross Harris's negligence, neglect, and intent to kill the child that it was irrelevant and we can just move on and you know what there may be grounds for a new trial here
1: oh wow okay well look we'll have to uh we we'll have to keep up with it and uh watch and see what happens and we'll definitely talk about it as we uh continue uh the show here on saturdays on extra 1063 i want folks to understand that you guys are available to share your expertise with them if they find themselves in some sort of legal situation, some sort of legal trouble. Bruce, if if somebody needs your expertise and, uh, and maybe they've been injured in some way, how do they get a hold of you?
2: Well, anybody who has been injured through no fault of their own could use uh, my help and certainly even just to discuss what their options are and what their rights are. Um, I'm easy to find, Hagen-Law.com. That's H-A-G-E-N dash law.com Bruce at hagen law.com as well as my phone number 404 522 four five, two, two, seven, five, five, three at peeps lawyer on Twitter and Instagram. Hit me up, follow me. Uh, we always have interesting, um, anecdotes and stories and information that we put out via social media. Uh, And it's a good way to communicate with us if there's some topic you'd like us to address on the show.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. But uh, another avenue that you work in that I didn't know for a long time until you just randomly brought it up on the show one day, and that is uh, for bicyclist rides.
2: It's a passion of mine. I have to stop myself from constantly talking about it on the show because there are other topics of interest but no, as far as representing injured bicyclists and advocating for uh, bicycle safety, that is my passion and it's what I do more than anything and and really better than anybody in the state of Georgia, I can honestly say that Um, and so yeah, if if somebody has been injured on a bicycle um, I I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging but there's just nobody more informed on this subject and more capable of representing you on this subject than I am, and then my office is.
1: Yeah, because you're you're a cyclist yourself.
2: That's it,
3: absolutely.
1: Yeah, and then, Ray, if somebody is in a a position where they need some defense counsel, how can they reach out to you?
3: Sure, 404-964-4185. My offices are now in Roswell, Georgia. And you know what? It's not just about criminal defense. Recently, a listener from 680 The Fan called me. His daughter had been involved in a car wreck. She was not hurt, uh, so therefore I didn't refer her to Bruce. But uh, the insurance company was offering an amount of settlement for the damages to her vehicle, which was totaled, that was less than the fair market value of the vehicle, and she was very upset. And I said, well, listen, let's do this. Do you have a loan on a car? Yes, she said. Well, do you have what's called gap insurance? She said, I don't know. I said, well, get your loan papers. Let's see if if you bought gap insurance. And what gap insurance does, it covers the difference in those situations between what's owed on the loan and what the fair market value of the vehicle is if it's a total loss. In this case, it was several thousand dollars. She had to gap insurance. She applied for that It got it all settled and she went out and bought a new car. So, you know, we didn't bring that client into the office. We didn't even sign a contract. We didn't charge her a fee, but we're able to give her some information that helped her and got her uh, in a better place pretty quickly. So we do a lot of that at our office. I know Bruce does as well. Uh, You practice law as long as we do you learn a few things about about other areas of the law and try to help folks out. So uh, 404-964-4185 or rayglaw.com.
1: And it's so funny because uh, Ray will tell you, he doesn't uh, play golf, he doesn't go hunting, he doesn't fish, and that is indeed his cell phone number. If you reach out to him, he will answer because it is direct. It's not, it's not somebody else answering his phone. That's going to uh, Ray's cell phone it, right in his hand, right in his bag, right in his pocket, wherever it is. If you need Ray, you'll always get him. This is your day in court on Extra 106.3. Make sure you uh, listen each and every week. And if you miss anything, you can also listen to it across the podcast uh, across Podcast park or wherever you download your podcast, whether Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, the Amazon Podcast platform, Spotify. It's on all the, uh, the major platforms that you can listen to uh, podcasts on. So listen to this show there, or uh, you can even listen to it on the Extra 106.3 app. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Chape. Make it a great weekend.
0: The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. Hey everybody, Buck Baloo here. And as a recent customer of Jim Ellis
4: automotive and a longtime friend of the vice president, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis automotive group takes pride in being a family owned and operated business. was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. A lifetime of hard work. Children laughing in the kitchen. Family photos on a restaurant wall. A legacy that lives on.